Talking Theater with Sir Holworth Felixstowe Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theater. Good day. In 1984, as part of a series commissioned by NSMBCDEFGHIJKLM, I was asked to participate in the hit show Deep Inside an Actor, an interview-type show where celebrated actors like myself were interrogated by the infamous Billy Philpot, a slack-jawed upstart who had trained at the James Lipton School of Speaking So Slow and Smoothly that people think you know what you're talking about. After an interview of around 40 minutes with the man, an audience of theatre students are then given the opportunity to question the actor to gain little nuggets of wisdom and to lick the proverbial anus of them in the hope they'll one day take pity on them and give them a job when they inevitably can't get a role and are considering self-harm or worse, supermarket work. Some would say the same thing. The show was a relative success, but was cancelled after one series, due to Al Pacino setting fire to his own chair in the final episode, but not before, of course, he started, and I'm quoting the Washington Herald here, shooting the place up. Apparently, a student had asked him to say the famous words from Scarface, and Pacino fucking lost us. He often gets incensed at how his huge bank of work is so often forgotten to the certain quote in which he asks some defenceless gangsters to greet his small member, if you get my meaning. The student sent him over the edge, and, uh, well, I, I suggest you listen to the episode. <laughs> Actually, don't. It's, um, terrifying. Of course, the Padawan so often overtakes the Sith, to use a Lord of the Rings analogy. <laughs> I told you I'd watch it, Peter. Uh, but in this case, the opposite was true, and some years later, Lipton, Phil Potts' teacher, picked up the same format, and in the early 90s began his somewhat forgettable doppelganger, Inside the Actor's Studio, which ran in prime time for nearly 30 years. Like I say, not popular. Both Dear James and Billy, now, of course, rest in peace. Well, Lipton in peace, Billy in pieces. He was killed in a tragic accident involving a common harvester. Uh, don't ask. <coughs> Sorry, I just vomited a little bit. Uh, um, I was there. Jesus Christ. But why am I talking about this? Well, stop asking me questions and I'll tell you, you bunch of idiots. I said not to listen to the Al Pacino episode, nor the Oliver Reed, Peter O'Toole or Myra Hindley episode. No, let's listen instead to another episode. Yes, that's right. For a special treat, as we close this first series of Talking Theatre, the only podcast on Earth about the theatre, I thought we'd go back into my archives and go deep inside an actor. I thought we'd go back, and as Billy Philpott and all the students did in 1984, so many years ago, journey deep inside of me. So I invite you now to come inside me, your host, Sahol with Felix to Smooth, as we go one more time deep inside an actor. I do hope you enjoy it.
Bradley Bartholomew of the Wisconsin Gazette, reviewing a recent stage performance of tonight's guest, referred to his reputation as the most striking living actor of the English and Bangladeshi speaking stage. His stage work in London, New York, and around the world supports that reputation. He is among one of the most celebrated actors of his generation and has been decorated with every major entertainment award in the industry, including five daytime lemurs, three women's weekly awards, a grafter, and of course, a record seven imposters. He's been the double page spread in Playboy a record nine times and has appeared on the back cover of Time magazine. This year, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II for his services to drama and his environmental causes, specifically in the conservation of gibbons. Students, please join me in welcoming Sir Holworth Felixstowe Smooth. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you very much. Oh, that's very kind. <laughs> that's very kind indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's very kind. Indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's quite the reception. Well, that is very kind. That's very kind indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much. We start, as always, in familiar territory. Holworth, where were you born? I was born uh, in the back bedroom of uh, 25 Cromwell Street in Gloucester, which um, was the house of the local physician uh, at the time. The time, which was 1935, if you can uh, imagine that um, far back. There were a few hospitals in England at that time, is that right? That's right, yeah. She'd be lucky to find a hospital in those days in, in London, let alone in a, a small provincial hovel like the village that I was from. I mean, when one thinks of hospitals today, we think of doctors and nurses running around, you know, filthy corridors, old needles being used again, mouldy, damp windows, people groaning, dying in the corner, you know, the sort of, oh, I'm dying, I'm dying, and, um, and of course, rats. But uh, in those days, there, there really wasn't any NHS to speak of. So if you were to be birthed, uh, as in your mother had gone full term and had a gush from between her legs, then you'd call the local physician. He'd make the necessary preparations, which um, basically involved changing the sheets on his bed, getting fresh towels, and sanitizing the turkey baster, and getting a knife and fork on hand in case of the need for a uh, caesarean, um, which of course... Which is how you were delivered. Yes, that's right, that's how I was birthed, yes. Um, meantime, the locals would wheel the screaming lady over to the physician in a wheelbarrow, because of course there really were no cars in those days, or wheelchairs, and as I say, the lady would gush quite profusely as the baby came, which would render her walking almost um, impossible. Uh, I mean, imagine just trying to walk with a, a prolapsed vagina, which is essentially deputising as a bucket of water with a baby somewhere in it. Um, it you'd have trouble. You'd have trouble. And they did. Um, was it a hard birth? Only in the sense that it went on for 40 hours, was dreadfully painful, and my mother died twice during it. She ha had to be given the breath of life each time by the physician and his wife, who had the most dreadful halitosis, I remember she used to tell it. Um, when my mother came to, and was told she'd been revived by Mucky Marjorie, the doctor's wife. She nearly died again. <laughs> um, 
I mean, it, it was it was just a serious aneurysm that time, though, rather than the two previous heart attacks she uh, had. And you were born. And I was born, yes. <laughs> what was your father's occupation? Well, he did many jobs. Uh, he was a butcher, a baker, and then... A candlestick maker. Dead. Uh, yes, the occupational menage a trois evaded him due to a nasty bout of syphilis, uh, which he no doubt got from his uh, weekend proclivities. He, he, he was a flawed man, what can I say? So many of them were in those days. So, yes, th you know, there he was, 42, and, and dead from the knob rot, leaving a wife and, and three children behind. You have siblings? I do, yes. Uh, Culius, who is five years older than me, he's the eldest, uh, Fillering is next, she's two years younger, and then there's me, and then the baby of the family, Scret, who is uh, two years uh, my junior. Those are interesting names. Unusual, aren't they? No, I don't think so. No, they're, they're good, good British names. How did you cope with the premature death of your father? Well, it was extremely upsetting for us, um, especially for him. I mean, one forgets the dead. You know, when they're dead, they're dead. But uh, imagine being alive and then dying so young. He must have been absolutely livid, um, especially after he died. Um, I'm not sure what I mean by that. It was, it was difficult for me, certainly. I looked up to him, and not just because I was shorter than him, although I was, of course I was, I was a child. But uh, I mean to say that I, th I think it had a profound effect on me. And I just recall the pain of it. it seemed to go on forever uh, and ever. Was that a difficult time? I should say so. I mean, we suffered as a family for probably at least two years. I mean, you have to understand, we couldn't afford to move. And so the house was littered with remembrances of, of the man we used to know as our father, which was very difficult. You had constant reminders. There was his stick above the door that he'd give you six of the best of if you spoke to him or looked at him. There was his shiny, fresh, polished knuckle duster on the fireplace. Um, there was his ankle strap and his knife. And, and of course, there was his open casket and cadaver in the middle of the sitting room, uh, because my mother insisted it stayed there until the funeral, which was two years after he died, because, as I say, we, we were poor and had to save up for it. So, so there were constant reminders of him. Um, and that, I think, was a very, very key struggle. So you felt it got better after the funeral? Immeasurably. Uh, my mother never could quite save up to afford a full-blown affair in the end, so um, we just buried him at sea. Well, we weighted the coffin down with cement blocks and pushed him into the canal. He was dishonorably discharged from the Navy, so it seemed a sort of fair compromise. What, may I ask, was he dishonorably discharged for? Naked dancing on deck. With the captain. Did your mother work? Oh, like a bitch. I mean, it's an interesting one, actually, because, of course, she was a very famous opera singer in her later life. But when we were younger, I always understood that she'd worked in a board game factory making chess pieces out of wood and bone, you know, like whittling it. Um, but I found out, of course, that, that that wasn't the case at all, and that I'd simply misheard my auntie as a child talking about her on the game, working on the game, which of course is something difficult altogether. So um, she was a prostitute and, and then an actress. Um, and the interesting thing, it was very embarrassing for many of my family. I remember my great-grandmother, Agnes, 
right up until her death, telling her friends that my mother was a prostitute. Um, because the very idea of her feeling she'd become an actress was shameful, because of course being an actor in those days, it was just the worst of the worst. I mean, they had it so terribly bad. Um, that and of course the fact that prostitution had run in the family, so my mother was a trailblazer by moving out of what was ostensibly the family business. The family business? Yes, I mean in those days it, were, it wasn't frowned on as much, of course, and, and I mean they had unions. My, my grandmother was the union leader at Swords, the Society of Rough Shagging. So they had, I mean they had a lot, I mean I think her her group of prostitutes that she used to go around with. Um, they had a choir at one point, I think. So it, it, it was a big deal for my mother to, to leave and follow her dream of becoming an, an opera singer, and um, she did. And uh, she was a, a relatively a success. Is that where you got your talent? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've never had any complaints in the bedroom, but as good as a prostitute? Ooh, couldn't say. I was talking about the performing. Oh, I see, yes. Uh, well, I should say I should say it probably was. Yes, probably was. In 1940, you attended the St. Lawrence School for Girls for the first three years of your schooling after a clerical error which took time to correct in the courts. Is that right? Yes, my mother and father had been to a party the night before uh, and were very drunk still. And when they took me in on my first day and signed me up, they'd actually gone into the wrong school because it was they were over the road from each other and uh, signed me all up and everything, and, and I was treated as a girl, in the very legal sense. Um, for as you say, the first three years of, of my schooling, uh, and uh, until we moved, I mean, they used to call me Holly instead of Holworth, uh, and of course I, I was proposed with, with she and her all the time. Um, and occasionally I would sort of wrap my tinkle, you know, underneath, cross my legs when I would sit down to sort of give the illusion through the, the pantaloon, you know, um, just in case anybody was was looking, you know, um, one of my teachers, for instance, or, you know, a friend's parent, um, because it didn't, one didn't want to call attention to such things. But, um, yes, that happened, a, a slightly uh, unusual event. Uh, although, uh, you know, looking back, um, apparently it happened quite a lot um, because so many parents in those days were drunk. What did you learn there? Uh, I learned to be empathetic. I learned to get more in touch with my own feelings and my feminine side, and I, I learned how to clean my ninny. I didn't have a ninny, but that's hardly the point. I mean, if feminism teaches us anything, it's that we must all find and clean our inner ninny. And uh, that's metaphorical, you understand. Uh, especially if we want any kind of equality. And uh, I, I can't say it hasn't come in handy as well. Uh, just having a knowledge of, of, um, of, of the ninny. Do you subscribe to feminism? Uh, um, no, no. Not really, no. When you were allowed to leave St. Lawrence, you then attended what they call in England a school of hard knocks. Could you tell us uh, a little about that? Yes, a uh, uh, school of hard knocks was a type of school where the poorest children went, uh, mostly working class in order they'd be kept from the uh, wealthiest and the best people in society. I don't, I don't know if you know English society very well, but there's a very rich tradition of uh, the rich 
uh, staying rich and the poor staying poor. It's, it's how we like it over there. Um, anyway, I, I, I went to one of these poor schools, the School of Hard Knocks. And it was hard, don't get me wrong. Um, it was hard, but at the end of the day you got through it. I mean, I went to Thumpton High, which was a comprehensive just south of Gloucester Docks by the, by the Keys, in fact. And it was a tough little place. I mean, you could get a bash on the head from a, the local bully just for swinging too high on the swings or, or not dibsing the hopscotch markings, you know. Um, when I say local bully, I'm, I'm talking about the teachers, you understand. It, it, it was a, a different time. Was there illegal substances? Yes, in school, certainly. It was hard to get through it um, any other way. What form would these illegal substances take? We called it uh, CC, contraband confectionery, and um, people would try it in flying saucers, sherbet lemons, rhubarb and custards, strawberry and creams, uh, you'd name it, and the local candyman shopkeep, he could get it. Was it effective? I mean, you could get quite high uh, from a, a rhubarb and custard in, in those days. The sugar content was so high. I recall in a geography lesson dropping two, and halfway through the lesson they started to take effect. And I remember just feeling myself come out of my body, float up, turn over, look down at myself while the lady teacher was talking about rocks or something. So it, it was powerful stuff, but it, but it got you through the knuckle wraps and the slip of wax, and the general daily punishment that was the comprehensive system at that time. Uh, and that was under a Labour government, I should add. So, I mean, what does that tell you? What? Well, that there's shit. Well, you have Mrs. Thatcher now. Oh, wonderful woman. Well, wonderful. At 16, you left school and joined the military where you travelled extensively in the entertainment corps. Tell us about the Dalai Lama. <laughs> my, 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 my. You do do your research, don't you? We have our sauces. <laughs> I literally just said that. Well, in the entertainment corps, we were uh, often sent to all sorts of places. And um, one must remember that the empire was being dismembered all over the world at that time. Uh, I met Thiopson Gyatso in Tibet. And this was just as he'd become the Dalai Lama. Um, it's funny, actually. My friend Tommy Haffleton told me he was taking me to see the Dalai Lama. And I'd never heard of such a thing. And I assume he was referring to the zoo and that we were going to see some kind of alpaca. So, I mean, you can imagine my surprise when uh, he led me into the temple to be greeted by a short, bald man dressed in what can only be described as a very, 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 very small bit of cloth. Uh, you really could see it all um, dangling uh, about, and, and pendulous it was. But but we became very, very good friends, actually. And later in his life, we would often talk on the phone, and uh, he would ask me advice, and uh, I would ask him advice, and, and um, I became something of a sort of confidant to him. Uh, in fact, when I was down to the last two for Gandhi, I phoned him to get tips on how to effectively shave the scalp without nicking the skin, for instance. So, um, I mean, we were talking in ways like that. That sounds lovely. It was. It was It was very, very lovely. It was. I had no idea you auditioned for Gandhi. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, I did, actually. It's funny. I mean, it went to Kingsley in the end, of course, but um, roles often go to Ben because he's so cheap. I think he did Gandhi for expenses um, as a favour to Dickie Attenborough. I mean, he got the bust of the Oscars, I know that. He was so penniless. Meantime, Dickie went everywhere by private helicopter after that 
film. So there you go. That's um, well, that's show business. I think that's what I say. What is? Oh, the captain is a naughty boy. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's an old army song we used to sing. It. Um, isn't that funny? I haven't heard that in a long time. Uh, well, used to, I'm assuming you're asking me because what we have to say. We used to sing it in the army, and it used to go, um, "Oh, the captain is a naughty boy. You wouldn't take him home to your mother. He kills for the living, and he doesn't care, so I really, really wouldn't bother. Uh, um, sever ties with him like he severs heads. To slaughter makes him feel so manly, and the chances are." If it were war, he'd happily kill your granny. And it um, uh, went on from there. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's a long time since I've heard that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Oh, it's my pleasure. You leave the army and you move to London to make your fortune. No, that's wrong. Uh, I moved to find a job. Yes, of, of course. It's just a turn of phrase. Oh, well... Uh, move to London isn't uh, a turn of phrase. <laughs> You're not really good at this, are you? What was your first stage appearance? My first appearance uh, was when I was about five. Uh, my parents took me to London for the day and they bought me a ticket to a show. And it was a revival of Oscar Wilde's Cucumber Curtains and Cravats, which was a lovely little show uh, with Dame Edith Evans uh, in it. She played... I think she played the cucumber, I'm not sure. She certainly was dressed all in green. Uh, so, oh, I can't remember, I was five, remember. Um, I was sat in the front row whilst my parents drank over the road in an Irish bar called Finnegan's Wart. And I was just enraptured. I just remember seeing these, you know, curtains blowing, these cucumbers being thrown around, these ridiculous, ridiculous cravats, you know. And I was enraptured, and in the second half of the play, I just had to join them, and I got up, and I climbed onto the stage, and I began to sing a song. What was that song? Oh, I can see where you're going. Was it Happy Birthday, by any chance? <laughs> oh, thank you. Happy Birthday holds a dear place in your heart, and the hearts of the nation. You had a number one hit with it, some 18 years after that charming first performance as an infant in 19... Was it 1953? Yes, that's right. Um, yes, and it's funny, isn't it? You know, because I'd always loved it. I'd always loved the song. It's such a sweet little song, a lovely little waltz. And um, I remember that it was, it was my great-grandmother's wedding song. And um, and my father was buried to it. Well, he came. I think he came into the church to it. So it holds a very deep place in in my family's hearts. And 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 of course we sing it every year. We 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 just do our best to anyway. Um, so I just felt I had to record it really and put it out and uh, you know and and and, s and see how it did. And 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 it went to num number one and in every country on the planet. That's right, it didn't just go platinum, it actually went rubidinium, is that right? Yes, they made a, a new category because of its success, um, which was far-reaching. I mean, every country, like you say, I mean, including some which are essentially only inhabited by tribespeople. I'm told they play it on, on one cassette in the village. On birthdays? No. 
I know you have just given us your army song, but would you give us a little rendition of it? I, I don't think we could do without it. I really don't. Oh, I'm not sure about that. Come on, I've already sung one song. I'm not... <laughs> no, come on, I'm not doing it. Oh, I'm not getting paid for this, you know. Okay, okay, let's, let's go, let's go, let's go. Okay, all right, we'll, we'll do a little bit then. Okay, that's fine, all right. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Billy. It's not your birthday, is it? No. Right. When is your birthday? December. Early or late? Early. That's, um, Sagittarius? Yes. Oh, well. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for that. <laughs> that's, that's my pleasure. I actually once sang that um, with Liza Minnelli uh, for, uh, I can't remember whose birthday it was. Um, but um, she, we did a harmony at the end and she went up two octaves and um, she passed out. In your first autobiography, A New Hope, you say of the profession, I never found acting, but acting found me. In my earliest time in London, I was hiding from the world and acting came to my door, banged on it, told me to put some clothes on, because I was going to need them where I was going, the professional stage. And you go on. But I was wary of the voice behind the door, and I asked for verification, to which acting produced a bank statement with its name on it, which I asked it to put up to the spire in the door so I could see it. Still unsatisfied, I asked acting to come back when I had had my breakfast, but acting told me that no, my destiny was waiting. Annoyed, I got my coat, opened the door, and left to become a professional actor. That's quite the metaphor. Metaphor? How did you get your first big job? Well, I, of course, didn't train. Back then, you either went to drama school or to the repertory theatre. And um, the first was never an option for me because I couldn't stand the type of people who went in. Uh, nor the sort of people who came out. I mean, we used to call it the Ponce Factory. Certainly, it had their uses, of course. You could go in with a lisp and a peg leg in those days, and after three years, you'd come out with crystal clear diction and a plie Nijinsky would envy. But, that, I mean, that wouldn't stop the fact that you were a complete turd. So, you know, the working-class actors would go into the repertory theatre, which was essentially a sort of apprenticeship, but um, without all of the skill. I became part of a troupe called the Croydon Collective, which was a small group in the south of London. How was that? Well, Croydon was as rough then as it is today. I mean, you're just walking down the high street is like a hazard perception test. Uh, you never know when you're going to get mugged by either a, a ruffian or, or somebody working for a charity, you know, trying to get you to adopt a goat for a pound a day for the rest of your life, um, which, by the way, is daylight robbery. I mean, I said to her, what if it lives until it's a hundred? She said, well, they're usually quite sick, so they don't live as long as that. And I said, well, why bother in the first place? Fancy plowing cash into something that's dying. Just turn it into a coat. So, yes, the, the Croydon Collective, it, it was hard. Just like the repertory theatre, which was hard. So, so hard. I mean, we liked it. Of course we did. I'd go as far as to say we loved it, in fact. But that doesn't negate the fact that it was damn hard, and we struggled. Oh, we really, really did. Although, of course, 
you know, looking back, I do with great smiles, great affection, because at the end of the day we were working and we were happy. But, you know, that, d that doesn't stop us from understanding the key parts, which is that the repertory theatre was, was dreadfully, dreadfully difficult and hard. But I'm glad I did it, even though it was hard. In 1956, at the age of 21, you are with the Croydon Collective performing six shows a day, six days a week in six venues a night. That's right, yes, yes. And a little-known actor called Sir Lawrence Olivier is in the audience, and he sees you. What happens next? Oh, well. <laughs> um, well, oh, luck, 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 luck. Talent, 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 talent. Oh, that's, well, that's very kind of you to say. Are you trying to fuck me? No. Lawrence came because uh, Vivian Lee, who he was married to at the time, used to lock him out most evenings and, and throw tickets to him from the bedroom window so he had something to do. Uh, she loathed him and, and didn't want him in the house, but she never liked the idea of him wandering the streets looking for vulnerable young men, you know. So she threw his tickets and, and he came in and, as the story goes, he took his seat and um, the curtain went up and uh, he went to sleep which was customary for Larry, but, um, and well, here's where the luck is, you see, uh, he woke himself up with a little pump, uh, just as I made my entrance. Pump? Oh, sorry, that's an, uh, an Englishism. Uh, fart, do you say fart here? Oh, a rectalism. Rectalism, really? Yes, if you mean the smelly wind that the back passage can produce. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yes, rectalism. Although you'll find in the South they also call it an anal puff from the bum trumpet. Right. Well, um, well, he did an anal puff. From the bum trumpet. From the bum trumpet, yes. And uh, he woke himself up as, as I was making my entrance as Chiron uh, because we were doing Shakespeare's tragedy, Titus Andronicus. Um, and uh, along with a young Michael Gambon, of course, uh, who was playing my brother Demetrius. And uh, uh, we were giving the scene where the brothers cut the hands and the tongue off of Lavinia, Tidehouse's daughter, before ravaging her. And according to Olivia, he had never seen a rape like it. And he came back after the show, he had to, to congratulate us. Uh, and, and then took us to the National Theatre, just, uh, just plucked us and just took us like that, 20 years later. Astonishing. And so that's what I mean. It's, uh, I had no idea that, that all that time before I was just one good rape away from, from my career really getting a, a good kickstart. So it just goes to show that um, sometimes you must look in the most un unlikely of places uh, if, if you want to, um, to, 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 to move on and, and to do well, I think. Jenny Benny, writing for Smash Hits, writes that Felix Smooth's move to the National Theatre has to be one of Olivier's shrewdest. Having both on stage creates the kind of juxtaposition of talent that is unheard of. It is so often true that when certain types of talent are stood next to each other, an audience then really gets a sense about where the money is. Yes, I remember that comment, yes. What did that comment do to your relationship? Well, it didn't help. Um, certainly we knew what she was saying, but uh, Larry and I could just never agree on who she was saying it uh, about. Uh, in other words, who, 
who looked better because the other was so terrible. I mean, you know, look, Larry, Larry is brilliant. Don't get me wrong. And he may have the honorary Oscar, whereas I've only got nominations. But of course, you know, at the same time, Larry hasn't been asked to lay across the double-page spread of Hugh Hefner's Gentleman's Publication with nothing on but a smile and a, a cactus to cover one's treasures. How big was the cactus? <laughs> well, uh, Let's just say uh, you could see a particularly large prick popping out one side. How was the Olivier issue resolved? It wasn't really. Um, the added blow to the whole saga is we never could get clarity from Benny because of the car accident. She was hurt? She was mangled. Quite dead. Did your relationship then deteriorate after that? Yes. Uh, the last time we were on stage, uh, he did all he could to pull focus. Uh, including pulling faces and um, adding lines, and at one point having a, a full and thorough orgasm, which um, was a step too far, in, in my opinion. I mean, I like keeping it fresh, but uh, at the same time, there's, you know, there's keeping it fresh, and, 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 and then there's having an orgasm on stage. And it's terribly off-putting when you're trying to speak the verse. You know, you're trying to get the beats in each verse line of your soliloquy right, and at the same time you conspire him in your peripheral in the wings, beating himself off mercilessly. And as you get to the rhyming couplet, uh, trying to, you know, finish it off, he steps onto the stage to finish himself off. And um, bang, you know, uh, the attention is on him. Credit to him. That, I mean, Larry is in many other ways a consummate professional. And that night he, he kept the through line of his antics and played the character for the rest of the duration with a very large smile on his face and uh, jelly legs, which I think we can all attest to, can't we? But no, we don't speak now, and it has um, rather kept me away from the stage, if I'm honest. Well, that is a great shame. It is, it is, it is, it is, it is. But we also know you're being modest, of course, because we know that after a slew of awards for your work at the National Theatre, Hollywood came calling. Yes, much like acting, I had Hollywood banging on the door. It was um, getting quite crowded out there. It is fair to say there were others as well around this time banging on the door? Yes, I suppose there was. Um, depression was knocking at the door, uh, self-doubt, anxiety, bankruptcy at one point, and of course a, a small boy, desperate and in need. Your younger self? No, a neighbour. I think his name was Glop, but uh, I may have got that wrong. Uh, I had a pretty rough family that lived a few doors down. Father didn't work and was always sending the child round to borrow a cup of sugar. Uh, mother smoked 50 a day. I mean, the mind boggles. I sometimes said, um, he was a cute little one, the, the child, and he would sometimes ask to borrow the toilet roll, but <laughs> I would say, well, you can have it, so you don't need to borrow it and bring it back. <laughs> um, he did, though. He would bring it back. Um, all of it, which was a shame. In 1976, you were given the role of a lifetime in Howard Steffler, the Southern lawyer who defends a Southern woman in court wrongly accused of a crime a man committed in the aptly titled Wonderful Man. <laughs> Students marvel at the work. You have no idea what your counsel has given me. I dreamt of you coming. I saw you. 
Immer mal sagt, Sir, I have to ask you, are you an angel? My dear, it is you who are the angel. And if it is my life's work, I shall have you spreading your wings and flying back to the heavens where you have been dragged from. Oh, you wonderful, wonderful man. My dear, it is you who are wonderful. Wonderful man. Wonderful. What was it like working with Scorsese on the film? Well, Wonderful Man is often overlooked because it came out the same year as Taxi Driver, but it was an astonishing experience. Um, it is to date Scorsese's only action thriller musical, and it is a cult film in many respects, literally in fact. I think there's a small organisation in West Australia that uh, pray to it every day. I think they'd drink blood, I'm not sure. Scorsese was very insistent, though, on everyone keeping their accents. Um, I know there was much written about the time about me not being able to do the, the southern accent, but that, that, was, um, that was bollocks. Would you answer your critics and, and do some now? Uh, what, do, uh, what, the southern accent? Yes, do a, a southern accent. No, I'm not going to do that. It was a film that catapulted you to new screen heights, and in the new year you were knighted by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. What was that like? Well, you go in and you, you get on your knees, and um, the sovereign of the realm places the sword on your shoulder, and she presses it down until, until there's a fair bruise, actually, at which point she um, smirks a little and then asks you to get up and go, um, though she doesn't say it in as, as many words. It, it's thrifty, but um, sincere. I, in fact, I, I do credit Scorsese um, with part of all that because I think the film brought me to the attention of Her Majesty, who has always been a huge Scorsese fan, and told me at the Buffer luncheon afterwards that Raging Bull was her favourite uh, film, which would be understandable and fall in line with what we know about the Queen, which is that she absolutely adores um, any sort of bare-knuckle boxing, cage fighting uh, or wrestling. Um, so, but yes, that was um, that was dear Martin's work. I think so. Wonderful man, wonderful woman, and uh, wonderful experience. Wonderful actor. <laughs> you're very kind. Uh, you're very. You realise I'm straight, don't you? I mean, I like a man or, or men. Don't get me wrong, but um, but I am happily married. Just to let you know. In 1980, you made the biggest choice of your career when you agreed to be in a film called The Elephant Man. The production, though, was beset by issues, and you left with only part of your performance being retained before John Hurt took over the role. Tell us uh, a bit about that. Well, these things happen. I mean, it started, it all started when Tony Hopkins phoned me and said, Holworth, I want to play a doctor. And as it happened, I'd, I'd only just had dinner with David Lynch, who directed the film. And he said he was desperate to do a film where a man turned into an elephant. 
So I was, in course, in, enthralled by the notion and, and said, well, what about if, if Tony is a doctor and I'm this sort of elephant person and uh, they go on some adventures together? Because uh, I saw, saw it very much as a kind of odd couple knockabout comedy, when, of course, Tony saw it as a serious piece because, of course, well, Hopkins doesn't do comedy. Uh, you know, that's the old adage. He hasn't smiled in a film since 1964, and even then it was more of a grimace. Um, so, it, so immediately the production was into what we would call Rocky Waters, um, and it was decided in the end that, that we would split the film in two, and that would be its originality, that Tony would play the Doctor very po-faced and very seriously, whilst I would play a sort of dancing Ganesh figure. Um, and the early part of the film, the comedy premise is that this elephant man has got his big head stuck in a bag, so he cuts two eyes out to see. <laughs> it was funny, hilarious, um, even just to think about it. But um, again and again, through the process, Tony would pull focus with these rambling monologues about disability and discrimination and all this nonsense. And to be quite honest, the cameramen were falling asleep at the reel, as we say in the business. So um, I confronted him one day and I said, look, Tony, what on earth is this all about? And he said, what's the problem? And I said, I, I know you don't like the concept of the film, but what is all this rambling about? Why do you keep referring to me, for instance, as disabled? I'm not disabled. And uh, he looked blankly at me and he said, Holworth, have you actually read the script? <laughs> of course, I laughed. <laughs> because I never read scripts, you know, and everybody knows that. I, I, scripts get in the way, okay, and, and I prefer to be told my character name and then be given the gist and, and then to work. I like to get to work. And um, Brando was, was ever so similar. Uh, anyway, so Tony said, John Merrick isn't a real elephant. And I said, who's John Merrick? And he said, he's the elephant man. I said, well, there's two of us playing the elephant man. Why wasn't I told? He said, no, the Elephant Man is another name for John Merrick. I said, you mean to tell me that the other actor who's playing the Elephant Man, as well as me, also goes by the Elephant Man? He said, Holworth, get a grip. You are John Merrick in this film, and John Merrick in the story is known as the Elephant Man. I said, go on. He said, they call him it not because he is a real elephant, but because he suffers from a condition and the cruel people in the film give him the name Elephant Man. I said, well, why is my head stuck in a bag? He said, it isn't. You wear it because you are ashamed. I said, of the trunk? He said, no, there is no trunk. I said, well, what sort of elephant doesn't have a trunk? He said, you don't understand. I said, unless you mean that the Elephant Man's disability is that he has no trunk and therefore is ashamed, and therefore covers his face with a bag, then I understand you. And Tony walked off. And I think he batted something on the lines of, you just don't understand. So anyway, uh, I obviously did understand. I got it completely. So armed with that, I decided it's probably necessary to change my performance and give it, I think, a little bit more than I was. And uh, without a trunk, one might slur a little, for instance, uh, take deeper breaths. And so I did. I, added these little nuances, little nuggets or something, just to give the audience a bit better of an idea that I was a disabled uh, elephant, not just a normal elephant. Anyway, within a day of filming, uh, you know, disaster strikes, and David Lynch, the director, comes up to me and tells me that my medical insurance for the film had an error on it, and that I couldn't continue, but that the money put up meant they had no uh, option but to continue, and they couldn't wait for, for me and for me to sort out my insurances. So, uh, so I was released.
and uh, with full play. And I was replaced by a dear friend, John Hurt. And I was happy to go because I didn't want to see the film shut down, you know. And if it's a clerical error, it's, you know, my doing and nobody else's fault. Um, and so, I mean, the lesson from that is, you know, get your insurances sorted out. Um, so if you watch the film then, right up until the mask is pulled off, uh, off of the elephant man, and, and you see his face, that is actually me under the bag prior to the face being seen. Um, though, of course, they dub John's voice over my movement. So you're always seeing me when the bag's on the head. But um, then, of course, when it, the bag comes off, that is, that is clearly my good friend John Hurt. Um, and his voice all the way through, of course, which is a lovely voice. What did you think of the final movie? I liked it. Um, I felt he didn't look anywhere near enough like an elephant, though. I mean, when I saw Tony at the Academies that year, I said to him, why not paint John Gray? and put a little tail on him. It is missing it, Tony. And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, you really don't get it, Holworth, do you? Which is typical Tony. I mean, because he rarely gives way in a debate like that. I still think that a pair of large grey ears, at the very least, would really have set the film alight. I mean, it won all those awards, sure, but what does that matter? It's called Elephant Man. Christ. There was a different story about it in the media. Well, there always is, dear. Um, yes, how best to approach it. Well, well, I, it's said by some that I was essentially fired because when I learned of the disability, I changed my performance apparently and, as one journalist said, began performing it in a way that would be, at the very least, characterised as offensive and, at the worst, plain hateful. And that the entire crew told the director they'd walk out unless I was gone by the morning. I mean, <laughs> I've, I, it's preposterous. And I phoned Tony and I asked him and he said very clearly that there was some truth in it, which... I mean, that tells you all you need to know, not the whole truth. And that's the crucial point. I said to him, so you're saying that the insurance was the main reason? And he said, you really, really, really don't get it, do you, Holworth? And that was good enough for me. Honestly, sometimes, you know, I wonder where these so-called journalists get this nonsense. I really do. I saw one write an article saying the film's portrayal of the real man, John Merrick, brought her to tears. I mean, <laughs> real man. Somebody ought to fire her researcher. I mean, does she really think there could ever be a real elephant man hybrid? I mean, she really, really didn't get it, did she? I mean, there could never be a real elephant man, could, could there? No, I, I don't think Not so. Not a real elephant man, like a man with real elephant's head and, and two little man legs. No, I... The body wouldn't support the head, for a start. I mean, I suppose if you were going to do it, you'd need to support the legs, perhaps by grafting on more man legs, uh, in which case you may as well graft on elephant legs for support. And, and then, you know, it's got a trunk, ears, a tail, and elephant legs. It's, it's hardly an elephant man at all. It's more just an elephant with, with human arms and, and, and nipples, probably. That's a frightening thought. Yes, it is. It is. We finish the interview, as always, with a short questionnaire created by Pivo which I ask to all my guests. Holworth, what is your favorite word? Oh, love. <laughs> or no. Uh, I quite like no, as in N-O. As in, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I don't want to go there. No, I'm not going to eat this. No, take it back. No, I'm not going to pay for it. No, I'm not going to eat it unless you, unless you do it again. No, I don't like that either. I'm not paying. No, get away from me. No, I'm not getting into that police car and all the rest. I, I quite like no. Actually, no, let's go with love. Let's go with love. What is your least favourite word? Anything that comes out of the mouth of Mickey Rooney. Really? Why? Uh, filth. That's pure filth. Next question. 
What turns you on? Oh, oh, so much, but I think I'd probably have to plump for vaginas, uh, which are, are definitely lovely stuff. Uh, and the other ones, um, uh, tits. What turns you off? Prejudice and discrimination, I would have to say. Yes, we know you're quite political. Can you tell us, what was Section 28? Oh, dreadful. Oh, goodness me. Well, Section 28 was where they used to keep the fruit and veg in Sainsbury's, which is a supermarket in England, for those of you who don't know. But um, they've, well, they've moved it all around now, and uh, I've got no idea where the fruit and veg is. It's an absolute disgrace, and I've, I've, no, I've no idea where anything is these days. Section 28 or otherwise. So I go to Tesco's now. I just think, stuff them. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, too many. I mean, I, I've always loved those little sounds in life. You know, the things that when you hear, you can't help but smile. Like, um, I don't know, like the, the scuttling of spiders uh, across the floor or the, uh, the gentle hiss of a, of a barracuda or um, the gnawing of rats. I mean, that just... You know, makes me warm all over. The sort of little of the rats is lovely. Perhaps um oh yes no, the you know those creaky floorboards that you get in the dead of night. You know when you're not you're sure you lock the door, but uh, that floorboard only creaks when it's stepped on. So you know somebody's outside your bedroom door. Who could it be? You get under the covers and uh, hope uh, hope it's not uh, not not a criminal. Um, but things like that, yes, I, I adore. I absolutely adore. What sound or noise do you hate? Oh, that's a difficult one. I would probably hate... <coughs> that's not a really nice noise, is it? Um, or if not that, perhaps like... Imagine if that was going on all the time. Imagine if that was going on all the time. It would be awful, wouldn't it? Um, then again, I, I think you oh, perhaps something a bit more. That's a bit crazy, isn't it? And uh, if that was going on, you'd bit feel like you were sort of, you know, going from one side to the other. Um, I mean, I could go on, but I think we'll stick with those three. I think probably the first one. That's probably the most annoying one. That's probably the one I hate the most. Um, then again. Well, I don't know, that one is the same. Yeah, so it's definitely that one then, definitely that one. If it wasn't a sound and it was more of a noise, then I would have to say children's laughter, though. Um, that just goes right through me, especially my own, which is unfortunate. But, um, I mean, I mustn't lie, you know, it's awful. And uh, it, it always has uh, had that effect on me. I mean, I remember as a child uh, rarely laughing because the sound of my own laughter would just cause me to fly into a rage. Um, just, just thinking about it now, you see the, the hairs have gone up, it's given me the goose flesh. What is your favourite curse word? I quite like gooseberry. Uh, I often call people uh, gooseberries. No, come on, a curse word. Oh, uh, okay, well, uh, I sometimes call people silly sausages. You know, somebody is chopping on your foot and you say to them, oh, you silly sausage. <laughs> oh, come on, sausage is a, is a come curse on, word. Come on, Holworth. We know you can do better than that. Uh, but why cunt then? Cunt. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I wouldn't mind being a policeman. I've always had a, a love of the law, and um, they really are the gatekeepers to safety. Uh, 
and in many respects to power. I mean, I, I like the truncheon as well. You know, you just <laughs> you can imagine how fun it would be bopping somebody on the head. You know, oi, you stop stealing that. Come over here, and bop them on the head. You know, uh, you come here. Did you look at me funny? Bop on the heads. You know, come here, you get on your knees, you ant. You're an ant to me. Bop on the head. Well, you know what fun and very important work too. What profession would you not like to attempt? Anything that involves charity or, or volunteering. Um, it does a lot of good, I'm sure, don't get me wrong, but I just can't see the benefit of it for myself. There's nothing in it for me, essentially. And, you know, I think I'm too likeable for one as well. I mean, you have to be quite desperately annoying person to be one of those town centre clipboard holders, you know. Though I've probably got the right amount of self-importance for it. Um, so, yes, charity uh, of any sort. You support Gibbon conservation, though? Well, one must. There's poor Gibbons. Lastly, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I'm an atheist, um, and I firmly believe that when we die, it is the end, and that all that awaits is the abyss of eternal darkness and silence until the universe meets its final oblivion. That would be a funny thing for God to say. Don't try to be funny. Sir Holbeth Felix Toe Smooth, here are your students. Um, hi, is this thing not okay? <laughs> hi, um, hi, sir. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm Katniss Frisdonia, and I'm a drama major at UC NYC. Um, and I know you talked a lot about collaboration as being important. Could you tell us what is going on with you and Elton John at the moment? Well, we're not sleeping together. Uh, I meant uh, the new project. Oh, sorry. Um, I thought you were referring to the recent story in the papers, now, um, which I might say here now is absolute rubbish. I mean, I've never heard so much nonsense in my life. Elton is very much in love with his wife, and I'm very much in love with mine. And this gotcha culture in the media is getting absolutely silly now. I mean, it really is. They came for my dear friend Catherine Hepburn, my friend Kenneth Williams, Freddie Mercury. It's getting stupid now. Really, it is. I mean, they're going to end up having real egg on their face with all of this. Tom Cruise, even. I mean, you never met a more attractive, handsome, lovely guy. They ought to leave him and us alone. So that's the end of that. Um, but yes, dear Elton and I, well, we were working on a very exciting project, actually, involving uh, the reworking of Hamlet for the screen. But um, Shakespeare's Hamlet, I should say. But uh, I have since left the production team after it was decided to try and retell the story through animation. Um, and in particular with big cats. I mean, I can't say much more, obviously, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, I just thought it was ludicrous. And I, I said to Elton and Walt, if you seriously think that people are going to sit and watch a film about a bunch of lions fart ass about singing, then you're madder than I give you credit for. So, so I said good luck to them, but um, I'm, I'm no longer part of it, I, I'm afraid. And, and I think I've saved a, a pretty penny dropping out of it as well. And there really is a, a lesson there for all of your students um, when you think about it, you know, because think of the, the money, the credit, the reputation, the face that I've saved by getting out of what is quite clearly a ridiculous concept and um, they're probably going to spend years developing it and bring out some little trite piece and you know uh, good luck to them but I think it'll tread a path into oblivion personally and so so it's we're weeding out those the difference in in types of projects is it's a really important thing and, and it's a skill that you acquire over time so just all I would say is keep your head above the water you know leave those fantasizing to the pop stars and the, and the children's story fanatic you know Thank you for your question. Who's next? Uh, hi, Mr. Felix. My name is Brian. 
I'm a third year acting student. Acting, that's what I do. I was wondering who on the scene you think is really special, who you would consider um, is producing really good work at the moment. Sorry, you want, you want me to come on a show that's meant to be about me and talk about how good somebody else is, is that right? <laughs> you can piss off. So, Holworth, good afternoon. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, absolutely my pleasure. I've just found out, um, the, 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 I found this whole thing insightful, and I wanted to ask how you choose your projects, and is there a particular project you're fond of? Um, I, I believe the format is uh, one person, one question. So it's a, a rather greedy of you to ask two. Uh, so I'm going to ask your first one and ignore the second one, and maybe you can have a little think about um, what you just did. Uh, but also, uh, thank you for your question. Uh, well, people often ask me how I choose my projects, um, and, and I can tell you what it won't be. Uh, it won't be to do with the script. They're rarely evocative, and as I've said before, I, I don't tend to read them, because it's just my method. Uh, it won't be about who's in it, uh, or who's directing it, or any of the production team, for that matter. It won't be about its impact, won't be about its budget, though of course my fees are non-negotiable. Uh, it won't be about where it's filmed. It won't be about whether I care about the story or the character. It will have something to do with the catering on set or in rehearsal. My mother always said if, if you put your stomach first in everything you do, you won't go far wrong, and there's a lot of truth in that. It's actually only failed me once, as I recall, when I was meant to be watching Wexley, who's my, my youngest son, and instead of doing that, I, I just went to, to get a burger. Uh, but he survived, um, I should add. But I, th I think in terms of picking a project, you should pick what suits you. Uh, but inevitably, we all have to eat. We all need to get a taxi everywhere. So food and money should be your top priority, I think. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're, you're dressed as a chicken singing the Burgess song. If there's a lovely bit of glub-glub between takes and a big fat check in your pocket, then take the bloody job and enjoy it, I say. And in fact, I, I grew to quite like that chicken suit. Um, and I still get it out on special occasions sometimes, especially the red tights. Uh, hello there. I was just wondering if you have any advice for any actors about how to be the best at your profession. Oh, well, I mean, we get this one all the time. What could I say? You know, I think acting is a, a fickle old business. And, and when you've been in it long enough, you come to understand that self-preservation and survival are, are really the key. Whatever one can do to survive is justifiable and often necessary, uh, even if perhaps it is, at times, um, criminal. Now, of course, it would be wrong of me to say that, that one must commit crime, but um, if you find yourself in a situation where it is necessary for your art and, and you can live with that explanation of your actions, then, then I would say do it. Um, and in the interest of my own self-preservation, I was also telling you to stay away from the profession and stop taking jobs that I would otherwise get. I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing I would say. Also, I mean, I can't recommend enough carrying a knife. That seems like a fitting place to end. Sir Holworth Felix, so smooth. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that. It is sometimes a lovely thing to look back. Um, sometimes it isn't, like if there's a, been a terrible accident behind you. Um, but in the metaphorical sense, you're normally fairly safe. Um, as I say, that was from the early 80s, so you'll forgive the rampant denials of my sexuality. Um, we did all eventually come to our senses, uh, among other things. That's all for today, and all for the series. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, we'll be back in the new year with series two, which focuses on Jean. Uh, uh, no, not Jean, my, my hairdresser. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, tell any of you to focus on him. Uh, he's a mess. No, uh, genre of stage and screen, things like um, oh, uh, thriller and uh, uh, kitchen sink drama and pornography. and uh, we Actually, we won't do pornographic. Will we, Sean? Or, no, I, I think we will do. There's, well, it's not enough naked people on stage, if you ask me. We all used to do it back in the day. Well, it's like the Greeks, I mean. But, uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling anyway. It, says, it really has been a pleasure, and I hope you've enjoyed this first series, and I, I hope you'll you'll come back in the new year for a little bit more of, of me. And, of course, I have been Sir Holworth Felix Stone-Smooth, You've been in your bedroom, <laughs> listening between fumblings, no doubt, to this talking theatre, which is the only podcast on earth about the theatre. For the last time, this series, to you, I say, good day. <laughs>